A very good morning. It's Sunday, the 3rd of February. This is News Talks on the Record with me, Susan Kyo, with you until one o'clock this afternoon. If you want to contact the programme today, you can send me a text 53106 at a cost of 30 cents. You'll also get me on Twitter at Susan Kyo News. We've got a busy show on the way. We'll start by taking a look at the Sunday newspapers along with our panel, Gronya Nieda, reporter with the Journal.ie, Ivana Batchik, Labour Senator and Law Lecturer in Trinity College, Dublin, and Larry Donnelly, attorney from Boston, now law lecturer at NUI Galway. You're all very welcome along. Thanks for coming in this morning. Thanks Thanks very much, Susan. Now, before we get started, uh, we're going to take a look at some of the stories making the front pages. Health, the lead on a lot of the Sunday uh, papers today, the Sunday Business Post and the Sunday Independent. The Sunday Business Post going with the headline, most of the 221 cervical check women now cancer free. Susan Mitchell has this story this morning. It reveals data compiled by the HSE shows at least 75% of the women were diagnosed with stage 2 or earlier and have no evidence of active disease. Uh, the Sunday Independent leads uh, relating to the spiralling cost of the National Children's Hospital today. The headline there, Varadkar defends high cost of hospital. Jody Corcoran uh, has spoken exclusively to Leo Varadkar for this piece. Uh, he's described the £2 billion price tag as misleading and says no one will be sorry when the hospital is built. And we'll come to both of those stories with our panel shortly. Uh, the lead story on the Sunday Times is Brexit related this morning. Farmers set for huge EU payoff in hard Brexit. Uh, the paper's political editor Stephen O'Brien reporting today that Irish farmers are in line to get hundreds of millions of euro in emergency aid from the European Commission to offset a collapse in beef and dairy prices in the event of a no deal Brexit. And the Irish Mail on Sunday goes with TD's aid forged papers for 18k pay hike. According to the paper, a guard the investigations underway into whether a TD's assistant fraudulently claimed thousands of euro in public money by allegedly forging documents. The paper also reporting the assistant denies those claims. Now, as I mentioned, health related stories in all of the papers, including obviously the ongoing nurses strike. Uh, We will get into this with the panel in a moment. But before we came on air, I spoke to General Secretary of the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation, Philney Hay, and I began by asking her about this escalation of their industrial action. Well, other services are now joining the services that were involved up to now. Up to now, we've had general hospitals, maternity services and community nursing services. So now care of the older person and intellectual disability services will be joining in um, the action. And that takes um, place from the middle of next week. And um, as previously announced, our members will be engaged in industrial action, strike action again this Tuesday and Thursday in pursuance of um, realistic recruitment and retention measures, because obviously the issue we're pursuing is that we should have enough uh, staffing to properly and safely provide services for patients. In care of the elderly, that is a particular difficulty because the staffing numbers have dropped considerably over the last 10 years. In general terms, we find it very difficult to recruit. We find it very difficult to retain We have a big problem now emerging in our children's hospitals. We know, for example, we need a minimum of 300 um, sick children nurses to staff the new children's hospital. But we have graduates who just graduate this month and um, they're immediately going to the UK. The UK are aggressively recruiting our our graduates, particularly um, our graduates who, who qualify in sick children's nursing because they come out with two qualifications. 
They have a general nursing qualification and a sick children qualification. So they're highly skilled, highly educated and highly sought after. Phil, can I ask you, so we know then, just to be clear, uh, there's two days uh, this week coming, Tuesday and Thursday, three days the following uh, week after that, and then the two extra dates are the 19th and the 21st of February. Is that correct? That's right. That's what was uh, decided yesterday by our Executive Council. In addition to that, they're um, holding a protest rally next Saturday in Dublin. Details of that will be announced during the week, but um, they would be asking the public and all those who have supported us today to come out and support because clearly this issue isn't going away and we need the support of the public now to demonstrate why it's so important to have correct staffing levels, particularly when um, we have a, a looming issue in the UK which will most certainly cause them to be even more um, focused on recruiting from Ireland. Phil, what kind of dialogue are you having currently with the employer and the government on the issue to try and find a way forward? None. We've had a number of meetings at the WRC. At our initiation, we referred the matter to the Workplace Relations Commission in order to try and find a reasonable solution. We believe firmly the solution can be found within the Public Service Stability Agreement. And we have had a number of days, three days in fact, of talks at the WRC but absolutely no proposals whatsoever from government. And the Labour Court then intervened to see if it could, see if there was any middle ground. Again, no proposals. And that's very disappointing. And um, that's where we stand currently. And you're open, I presume, from an INMO perspective to talks if they were to come forward? I think we've demonstrated from the outset that uh, each time we took uh, a step, we gave a period of what we termed to encourage um, the government side to come to the table. And um, by referring to the WRC, we also demonstrated that talks are something we're very disposed to and negotiations are something we're very used to. And we want to use that route. Unfortunately, we've been forced to take this action in order to concentrate the, uh, the minds of government in what it has become a chronic problem and which is now affecting the health and well-being of our members because assaults have gone through the roof. Last year alone, there was over 9,000 assaults in the health service and 70% of them were against nurses. So the, the recruitment and retention problem is very, very real. It is affecting the health and well-being of our members and it is clearly a situation now where they're telling us and making it very public that the care that is being provided is below the standards that they wish to apply and that it is not safe care. Therefore, something has to be done. Phil, the escalation of the industrial action, I understand, will see um, health centres affected go from maybe 85 to sort of 240. And I noticed today that you have some ads out in the national press, you know, informing the public of this. When will they get more information in terms of if there is somebody with an intellectual disability or somebody who has respite care for the elderly? When will they know whether their centre or their area is going to be affected? The HSE advises that they have written to all centres and that clients and um, those that have a respite booking have been notified as and from last, as and from yesterday, because we met with the HSE yesterday. And um, 
they anticipate that all of the uh, bookings that have been notified will be cancelled as and from Monday. In terms of your assessment, Phil, of the public support that nurses received last week, what was your assessment of that? And I suppose going forward now that the action has been ramped up quite significantly, do you expect that the public will remain on side and stand with nurses? I think the public understands that um, the health service is losing the battle on recruitment and retention. They disagree fundamentally with the government, who constantly say, look, there's no real recruitment and retention problem. There is. It causes longer waiting lists. It causes longer waiting times on trolleys and EDs because you cannot open beds. We have situations in this country where we have perfectly good areas of care closed because we can't recruit and retain nursing staff. That's not good enough. We have to look at this problem. We have ready-made solutions. We're happy to present them. We have presented them. And we just need the other side to engage. Okay, General Secretary of the Irish Nurses Midwives Organisation, Phil Nihay, thanks for talking to us this morning. Gráinne Nieda, reporter uh, with the journal Dadaim, I come to you first on that. Uh, a lot written in the papers today about the nurses and what happened during the week. Um, a lot written from the government side as well in terms of how much this pay claim would actually cost the government saying they can't afford it. Yeah, and it's interesting that, you know, there, as you said, um, the health stories are making the headlines. So when you contrast that with the, the children's hospital where they're just going to find a couple of extra million to pay for and then sub, uh, sub, er, uh, in tandem with that, they're saying they don't have the money to, to pay the nurses more. I think that at the heart of this problem with the nurses or this dispute with the nurses is that last thing that uh, Phil mentioned there, which was that recruitment and retention isn't that the government are saying it's not a problem. Um, before... The government has admitted that there are 1,600 fewer nurses and midwives employed since 2007. But they're saying that retention isn't a problem when the population is increasing. They're also saying that more nurses or more people are studying nursing. But where are they going when they're graduating? They're going abroad immediately. And I think it's really interesting that um, what was mentioned there was um, when Brexit happened, that they will be more aggressively recruiting Irish nurses because there's a lot of EU nationals working in the NHS and they're going back to other EU countries because of Brexit, which means there will be an even greater influx of people um, leaving Ireland to go work in the, in the UK. So the government is facing some sort of a problem in the health service that they're not grappling with. I don't think they see it as as the issue that it is, which is that nurses are under so much pressure to staff the health service and they're not getting the support from the government who aren't even recognising it's a problem when when the government said before that um, recruitment and retention isn't a problem they said uh, although there are fewer nurses that productivity is made up for the shortfall which is kind of like wait so you're going to make individuals work more on an you know give them more work on their plate and then say recruitment isn't a problem, that there's some sort of denial there, I think, from the government uh, on this. And I, ca- I can't see how this is going to uh, change without some sort of um, give for the nurses. Laurie, I might come to you um, on this, Laurie Donnelly. Um, again, uh, um, Kevin Doyle is a good piece, actually, in the Sunday Independent today. Um, you know, and I think it, it might sum up a little bit of what generally people think. The, the pay demands appear fair, but their timing is all wrong. And at the end of the day, the government is locked into this pay deal with all the key unions, which lasts until 2020. And the nurses are signed up to it. 
that. So how do you square this circle? It's it's very difficult. And I agree. Uh, Kevin Doyle writes well about that today. Uh, I think that objectively speaking, if we peel back a little bit, objectively speaking, uh, nurses are underpaid. The reality is they're similarly qualified co- colleagues in the HSC make more money uh, than they do. Uh, and we cite international example. And I can cite, for instance, uh, Boston, where I'm from. The average starting salary for a registered nurse in Boston is $67,000 a year, more than twice, twice what yeah. nurses are paid here. Uh, my friends who are nurses and have been practicing for decades, uh, they're making six-figure incomes. Uh, that's because nurses have a very, very difficult job, uh, and they do it well in almost every instance. And I think all of us have personal experience uh, of nurses who have gone above and beyond the call of duty. And that's where maybe the real politique of this uh, creeps in. I think from the government, the government is citing, of course, the pay deal, uh, and the government is citing potentially the knock-on effects that doing a deal or giving an increase uh, to nurses might have. Well, the reality is, and public opinion does matter greatly on this, the reality, I believe, is that the public's sympathy uh, is with nurses to an extent that it would not be there uh, for just about any other profession. So from a real politique point of view, uh, I think it's in the government's own interest to do some kind of deal uh, with the nurses, as well as being the morally right thing to do at the same time. So you think if the guards or some other public service, the teachers came out after a deal had been done with the nurses that the public wouldn't side with those professions in the same way as nurses? Not not to anywhere near the same extent as my guess. Ivana, Ivana Bacic, would you agree with that? I would. I think Larry's assessment is fair and uh, I do think there's been a curious disengagement from government on the nurses' strike generally. I mean, it's very clear public sympathy is with the nurses. You could see that when nurses were out on picket lines during the week. You could see the immense solidarity people felt with them. Uh, Within my own party, Brendan Howland and Alan Kelly have been very clear that Uh, There should be engagement with the nurses and indeed that within the terms of the public sector stability agreement, it would be possible to do to to make some sort of special arrangement, some side deal, some special arrangement that addresses specifically the issue that Philney Hay spoke about, about recruitment and retention. So in other words, to address issues around pay and conditions, but in an indirect, in a more indirect fashion and to make a special case then for nurses that wouldn't uh, undermine or cause the the sort of um, the escalation of pay claims the government has claimed. I think the disengagement is disappointing because clearly what is needed is engagement. And I think any objective observer sees that uh, as as vitally important. It's disturbing to hear Phil Nihay speak there about the lack of direct contact between with with the INMO and government. I do see reports that ICTU and DEEPER, the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform, are in talks. And certainly Labour and other opposition parties this week called on the government to commission a review into the nursing profession, to look at the levels of work, that this, the pay scales, the uh, greatly enhanced skill sets that nurses now bring and don't forget we've all, we've upped in considerably the training programs for nurses who are now graduates you know the 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 sense now of an inequity between the pay of nurses and other highly skilled medical workers is much clearer now that we have nursing degrees now that nursing has become more professionalized and it, and now that it is so hard to keep particularly highly skilled nurses I mean we all know people who have trained here highly skilled intensive care nurses nurses with specialist paediatric skills and so on and who are getting so much better not just in terms of pay but conditions and mm. uh, work uh, um, uh, you know and, and uh, w- work conditions and promotion prospects and so on in other countries so I do think the government needs to engage they need to step up there are ways of doing this the opposition parties have suggested some constructive ways forward such as, as I say I think a review of nursing uh, and then looking at how uh, some arrangement some um, some negotiation to address recruitment 
and retention can be done within the framework of the public sector stability agreement. I think that's really where the government should be going. And I hope we'll see engagement this week. Really, it's very distressing, particularly for elderly people or people with chronic conditions, to, to face this level of uncertainty about cancelled appointments the and so on. Ron, you come back in there. And even just in terms of text-wise, and we've noticed this since the nurses' strike has happened, you know, you'll always get a bit of a mixed, you know, uh, kind of assessment of the situation on the text line. But a couple in here might just read them to you. Uh, we need to start talking about the babies waiting on open heart surgery in Crumlin. 13 babies now in a list. There were no waiting lists before this. We've been told our grandchild has to be operated on before the end of February. This is very stressful. We support the nurses. The government needs to take immediate action that come in from a worried grandmother. And another one then on the other side of it, if the nurses get what they're looking for, we will be on the picket line the next day. And that came in from a secondary school teacher. Well, there you go. Uh, I think it's interesting that Uh, on the waiting list thing that is the most visible kind of problem probably with the healthcare service from a day to day when we talk about problems in the healthcare service you might not notice them um, you know because the majority of people aren't going into the hospital day to day but the waiting list thing is something that everyone I think has experienced and another thing is everybody knows someone who's a nurse or a a friend of a friend who's a nurse and how the pay affects them so greatly Um, Ireland has one of the worst um, waiting lists in Europe uh, for A and E emergency departments, and that's just one example of how um, critical kind of more nurses are, how more nurses are needed. But the th- timing thing is interesting. We're in February now, um, two months say from when Brexit is due to happen now, and you would have to wonder from a government perspective if they're like, can we really give this money away in the months before Brexit when everything, all these warnings of the economic impact Brexit is going to have, um, is it something that they can really promise now? I do sympathise with that kind of point of view, especially when Pascal Donoghue was criticised quite recently by the um, fiscal council report saying that he's not saving enough Fiscal kind of advisory thing. council yeah, yeah exactly. absolutely um, um, Larry I might just bring you in there as well just in terms of the escalation because we did only hear of this last night and it is quite a ramping up of this action so over the next um, month we're going to have Ireland's healthcare system at a standstill for seven days out of the next month uh, the government did say on Thursday I think of last week that it was going to look at what sanctions they might be able to impose on striking nurses uh, including docking their pay or freezing the the pay rises do you think that really sort of threw fuel on the fire I I think that could backfire on the government I think the idea of sanctions I think again uh, there is a considerable amount of public sympathy for nurses the question however is and this is from an industrial relations point of view uh, the nurses do have to be careful strategically not to overplay their hand Uh, the the waiting list and other things that Grania cites and that some of the the text mentioned uh, those are uh, uh, there's two sides to that coin. I mean, obviously there are issues in the health system, but if these work stoppages are seen or perceived by the public to be contributing or exacerbating these problems, then you could see public opinion shift and shift quite dramatically. So the nurses have to be very, very careful uh, in how they go about doing this. But again, at the end of the day, uh, I think that they have objective truth uh, on their side. It's how they do it and how they go about it uh, that's going to be crucial. And I think uh, Ivana is right. I mean, it's a shame that the government isn't engaging. I think it's imperative that they do. And it's in their own political self-interest. And uh, they can engage, I think, in a way that doesn't uh, open up the possibility of future claims. It is crucial, again, as we've stressed this week, that uh, nego- that engagement is done within the existing framework that's not done to under- in a way that would undermine it. But the crucial thing is engagement. I mean, you know, the, the claim that the INMO have put in 
you know, that in the normal course of industrial relations is a claim that will then be negotiated upon or must or should be negotiated upon. And as I say, I think the real concern for all of us is the lack of engagement, you know, it's ha- and how engagement is then conducted in, in such a way that it, that doesn't, uh, as, as Grainne said, 50 days out from Brexit, that mm. doesn't open up a huge can of worms for the government facing this other existential crisis. So I think there are ways of engagement. I do think the review I've uh, talked about and that opposition parties have been pushing for is hugely important, actually, because it will, I think, then uh, present an evidence basis for the, for the negotiations on how best we go about recruitment and retention. Of course, recruitment and retention is an issue within the health service generally, and we all know that too. It's not just nurses, but clearly, you know, the, the, the concern nurses have, very valid concern about understaffing and safety. I mean, that's coming through very strongly in lots of articles in the paper. So I think that's the best way to engage on it is to look at this issue of understaffing and try and tackle that. But, you know, it's so important this is resolved. That That's heartbreaking the uh, text in from the grandmother and that's the sort of fear so many people that we all know are facing around the country so it is very important that we see some movement this week and it must come from the government and the INMO are waiting to hear that's what we hear and Do you think Yvonne it's sometimes on, it, there's a tendency on the public's behalf to either think you know pay them or don't pay them like there's more ways to skin a cat mm-hmm. than that and I think people maybe do realise that if you drill down into it there might be other ways that the nurses can be given something but like you say you're not putting the whole pay deal in jeopardy. Would you agree with Larry's assessment that the nurses will have to proceed with caution that I think, you know, generally the public will be okay maybe with one day of, you know, um, obstruction to the health system. But like I say, over the next month, if there's seven days that you're getting into a little bit of different territory there and they may see public opinion shift. Well, I think that's always an issue in any industrial relations crisis and in any strike that uh, mm. public sympathy can wane, of course, if if people are, are badly affected by um, by industrial action. So I think that is something I, I'm sure the INO, INMO are very conscious of. Uh, but currently, this cl- clearly is public sympathy for the nurses. I think there'll be a big turnout for the rally next mm. Saturday in, in support for, of them. But I do hope... I must say that by next Saturday we'll have seen some movement from yeah. government and from uh, deeper from the public expenditure reform from the Department of Health. I mean it is extraordinary actually today looking at the headlines as we started with mm. how health issues are dominating you know and uh, and issues around spending on health dominating so I think the, the, the you know if I were in government if I think any, any of us were government the, our main concern now with the nurses strike is to just try and diffuse the situation by moving to a scenario where there's going to be an engagement and constructive engagement and negotiation and I think most people, sensible people, don't say just pay, just pay more. Or I don't they, pay. Or yeah, 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 exactly. That in fact it is more nuanced. And I think that's reflected in in the public view of nurses, of the nurses. Uh, um, Might just read you this text. I'm a nurse who qualified 20 years ago. The workload of the nurse has changed massively over that period of time. People are now living longer. Patients are much more elderly now. Their care is much more complex. The workload has increased with a reduced workforce. Allied health professionals that have a large workload can just say I won't get to see that patient today but nurses don't have that option um, Ivana, Gronya and Larry are staying with me we'll be back in a moment On the Record On News Talk. Susan Kyo with you on News Talks on the record with you until one o'clock <clears throat> this afternoon. Excuse me. Now we're staying with health related stories and my panel is still with me. Gronya Nieda, Ivana Bacic and Larry Donnelly. And we are going to talk about the overruns at the National Children's Hospital. Ivana, I might come to you on this first because there was a development in this story last night with the resignation of Tom uh, Costlow, the chairman of the uh, development board of the National Children's Hospital. I suppose not a surprise that we would see somebody go. 
Yes, I think it, the pressure had certainly been mounting during the week and it did seem by yesterday as if some resignation was going to happen. Although I see reports in the papers today that uh, Tom Costello's resignation did take the government by surprise when it, when it happened. Certainly he was somebody who brought a lot of experience uh, in construction on, on big projects to, um, to the task. Um, and I do think, you know, there's clearly a lot more going on and a lot more uh, a lot more people that are, should be accountable rather than just him. I think that's that's probably the case. Uh, certainly this week, Alan Kelly in, in PAC in the, at the Public Accounts Committee was questioning um, uh, in terms of levels of knowledge of all of, not just by the board of the hospital about the overruns, but also about, by the minister in the Department of Health and indeed the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform who have a representative yeah. on the development board. And therefore, you know, why is it, I think the, the big question still remaining is, you know, why is it that we're only learning now of this overrun of course, the original projected cost about 900 million. Um, now coming up, to, uh, suggested projections 1.75 to 2 billion ultimately. But I see then the Taoiseach sort of fighting back then in the independence. Yeah, Sunday this Independent. on the front of the Sunday Independence. Yes, and this is today. an interesting twist, if you like. So the all week the story was the overruns. When did the minister know? When did the minister for health hear about this? When did the government learn about this? And why has it only become public knowledge so recently? When it appears, certainly as Alan Kelly suggests, that the minister knew about the overruns. Last, the end of last summer. The board had learned earlier in the summer and it seems the minister knew by August. Yet we're only learning about these overruns now. Clearly huge concern, massive uh, massive implications for public spending generally. But then the Taoiseach's fight back today is interesting where he's saying it's not that much really. Now I think that's kind of hard to take. He's saying it's two billion but it's over eight to ten years. It's in the context of a ten year capital And we'll be delighted when it's done. And we'll all love it when it's done <laughs> now. Okay, you know, there's a certain nugget of truth in the in the fact that you know all of these big capital spend uh, projects there's inevitably there are overruns and inevitably people are delighted and, and clearly as somebody who's uh, many of us have spent time in Crumlin wonderful care in the children's hospital there but you know definitely conditions and building that needs huge revamping and restructuring and so on and bit rebuilding so you know clearly we will all be delighted when there's a new children's hospital but it's simply not good enough to say that that therefore excuses this level of cost overrun without any explanation or any credible explanation as to why. So I think what people want to know is why did this overspend? Why are these projections now so much bigger? And, you know, what was the, what what series, what are the series of stages or developments that caused it? Mm-hmm. Simply not enough to say, oh, this is, I think, construction inflation was the main argument given, yeah. but clearly there's more to it than that. You know? Laurie, I might bring you in on yeah. that. What did you make of what uh, the Taoiseach Leo Vragar had to say in defence of the hospital and the I, overruns? I think this, this kind of attitude that, you know, uh, we'll all love it when it's there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think that's going to enrage people. And, it's uh, too glib. It It is. It's too glib. And I I think if we pull back from this, one of the things about this instance uh, and other instances, and I should say this is not unique to Ireland, but what it fuels, and this is what I really worry about, it fuels a real sense of cynicism uh, amongst ordinary people who look at this. Uh, And for those of us who believe that government can, should be, and often is uh, a force for good in people's lives, uh, this is very, very discouraging because the average person in the street is going to say, look, they can't do anything right. The government can't do anything right. Politicians can't do anything right. It will fuel uh, that cyn- that cynicism uh, and that anger. And I think that's the lasting consequence, perhaps, uh, of, of what's happening. 
I think that's a terrible shame uh, for those of us who generally have faith in the system, who do think that there are people with goodwill and good intentions, and the intentions behind this are good. But when it hap- when it unfolds uh, in this fashion, uh, it just makes people out- outraged. And those of us who like to, th- to believe the best about what government's intentions are, we don't really have much of a comeback to them. Gronia, I might bring you in on it. Uh, as we mentioned there, Tom Costello resigning last night. Do you think that's going to be enough to take, I suppose, the political heat out of this controversy? Because there is an awful lot of political heat around accountability and somebody being held responsible for this. Exactly, yeah. And there was there's a lot of talk in the papers about the, you know, there's a headline in the Sunday Independent, a public sacrifice stops politicians from falling on their swords. And it's that's kind of like, and is it enough that one person or two people are held accountable? I think what we need actually is is how this mm. all came about uh, to stop it from happening in the future. I think that's more important than um, people being sca- scapegoated or being held to account for something they actually did. Like, what has caused this a massive amount of money? And the con- there are consequences to this. Um, Radker said that a couple of projects will be deferred for weeks or months. And if that sounds like a short time frame, remember that Radker, when he was Minister for Health, said that the, co- the Children's Hospital will be built by 2020, short of an asteroid hitting the Earth. And now it's expected <laughs> to open in 2023. So if we think that that's going to um, hit that deadline, it's, it's not likely. Um, on a basic level, what does this say about the government's ability to estimate costs for things? What is that based on? Is this is this because they Radker said the cost of construction was higher than what we budgeted for? So if we're talking about the cost of building ha- houses um, or the cost of uh, a no deal Brexit on Ireland, what is the government basing these costs on? And does it affect a wider thing than just the healthcare service? Does the government need to buy a massive calculator is probably the question <laughs> that everybody is wondering. Ivana, uh, PwC, this report that we're going to get in March, yes. um, our own uh, political correspondent here in News Talk um, broke a story uh, during the week that basically it was going to <clears throat> excuse me, stop short of determining any culpability uh, in terms of, at an individual level, in terms of what went wrong, why the project overran so much. That surely isn't good enough. Like, surely when we get all the answers and we, we have they have sort of full disclosure and full insight into what happened, then surely we need to learn something from these kind of mistakes. Yes, I, and I think that is, is what we hope will come out of the PwC review. And of course, there is also an internal review going on. In fact, there's been questions as to why you is have that, two do reviews. Do you have an issue with that? I always, see, I always feel that sometimes if everybody's involved in trying to find out what the problem is, then nobody really is ever held responsible because there's just too many people involved in it. And sometimes you need to break it down and go, OK, like we need to find out what happened here, but let's everybody take a step back from it for a minute. There seems to be a lot of investigations going on, an internal one, the PwC one, and they're all costing money as well. The PwC one's going to cost a nearly half a million. It will. And I see the Mail on Sunday raising a question about a conflict of interest because PwC also represent, I think, the... Uh, or are inv- get involved Involved with one of the firms involved in building the project. But anyway, that aside, I think you're right that we do need to have greater clarity about what exactly are the terms of each of these reviews. Mm. What will the PwC review seek to establish? I think there are clearly very... Um, Serious questions to be asked about the governance structures for the spend, you know, for spending decisions that the board, that the development board, which had the, a deeper representative, as I say, but what were the mechanisms to feed back to the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform and the cabinet as a whole about over about spending on an ongoing basis? And it seems perhaps there was some issue around lack of communication, uh, which which is what has co- uh, which is which may well have contributed to the overrun. So I think structures and governance are hugely important. I do think once we have 
have the review uh, and once we've seen that sort of structural um, uh, fact-finding exercise carried out at that point, then, of course, we would expect PAC to take it up again and to and to quiz where the accountability lies. But I think PAC is going to continue doing that in any case over coming weeks, even pending the outcome of the review. So it's, it's most unsatisfactory. I think really it's the opaque way in which the overspend appears to have been allowed to just keep going on without anyone calling a halt or or commissioning a review earlier. I think that's really the concern. Yeah, uh, Larry, at the minute, it, we're talking about it all the time, but at the minute it is just a hole in the ground. Now, it's mm. a big hole in the ground and it's costing an awful lot of money. Is there a chance that somebody's going to want to go back to the drawing board here? Some people may advocate that. I mean, that, that look, look at the, do you keep digging a hole when you're in trouble? I, that's the question some are going to ask, certainly. I, I think I heard Pat Kenny actually ask it to, during the week uh, on the radio. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's in the ether. But just in terms of the report, and I take what I think Ronnie was saying about uh, blaming somebody mightn't be the answer to all of this. But I think that people are going to look at a report that's being commissioned uh, by an outside group, PwC, which at least in theory anyway, uh, is not motivated by politics or looking to favor and they're going to say they're going to do a report but they're not in any specific fashion going to allocate where the blame lies that to me i think most people are going to say what's the point of the report if we're not going to hold people to account specifically uh, and i think that that's troubling and i think that that again that cynicism that anger that i referred to earlier uh, i think it's probably only going to fuel it they're going to, people are going to say this report really is a whitewash I mean, there is. We, we talked earlier about uh, the the controversy that has dogged the project from the beginning. When you talk mm-hmm. about going back to the drawing board, the issues around the site, mm-hmm. the location of it, uh, you know, there was there were very uh, developed and I I thought excellent alternative plans for different sites, including one based around the Coombe Hospital, uh, the maternity hospital, which is very close to James's. So, uh, so I must say, you know, given that we went got through all that and finally James's was agreed upon, I think it would be unfortunate. I must say, if so if you think proceed now, uh, even with that though site. I, as I say. I, support, I actually support, personally supported a different sighting of it. I think at this point we've gone so far down the road with James is that you couldn't go back to the drawing board to that extent. But certainly they need to look at you know, I think Ronya, there's an interesting breakdown in the Sunday Independent as well of the costs of that 1.7 billion to date. Mm. And one of them is 40 million approximate write-off for the Matter Hospital site that wasn't used. Oh, that's right. So that's yes. the other thing, yeah. like that, that this has been a mess from the start. Yeah. And then when you think about it, it was to be named the Phoenix Children's Hospital or something like that. Mm. And then there was a change of name and the costs associated with this has been like we actually don't realise it because there's been such a massive time gap in between each thing but it's actually been a, a couple of massive errors from the very start of this which is again a ma- maybe it's not just the costs we need to look at but this whole entire project and how it's been mishandled Laurie anything else there's a lot of coverage of it in the papers anything else stand out for you and what's there uh, I mean as you say there's, there's a number of pieces that, that I think all tell the very same story uh, but at the end of the day I think we should reflect on what the, the purpose of this children's hospital is and it's to provide world class care uh, for kids who really need help uh, and I think we need to get focused on that uh, and the government needs to get this thing done uh, get it built and push on as fast as possible Ronya, you mentioned when we were talking about the nurses there, do you think it's particularly unfortunate that these two stories are sort of around and people are talking about them at the same time? Because it just seems like a massive, massive overrun. And if that hadn't happened and could have been avoided, would there be a little bit more money in the pot there that would have gone towards maybe sorting out the nurses dispute? And we may not have found ourselves in that situation. Yeah, well, this is it. And not only are they those two stories breaking kind of simultaneously, but the figures are quite similar as well. So there's a piece that says that if the nurses 
resources were to get the, the pay increases that they want, that there would be similar pay increases at requests for other public sector workers of 2.3 billion. And we look at the National Children's Hospital runs, um, it's currently looking to, it could be over 2 billion, I think Alan Kelly said or, during the week. But then it's on track to becoming the most expensive hospital in the world. And I think the current cost of the cur- current uh, hospital holding that number one position is 2.2 billion. So the figures are so eerily similar as well. And it's a hard argument for the government to make that we can't afford to pay you more and simultaneously bankrolling basically these massive costs without actually giving a reason why why they're um, spiralling kind of as high as they are. I think at the heart of this as well is another thing is just kind of thinking as, as a journalist that it's hard to follow the costs of things when the private um, companies are involved in a, a public project um, because obviously you can't FOI um, uh, specific information that's commercially sensitive. Exactly. And then mm. when you think about it from a commercial point of view, as a business, I wouldn't want to take mm. on a project if the whole uh, world was open to how I kind of operate as a business. Um, but how do we kind of hold companies or the I'm thinking as well from the point of view of building houses and the homelessness crisis. Um, how do we kind of track how the government is solving problems using commercial companies and using things from a, a private kind of uh, sector um, point of view if we can't, if there's not that transparency or traceability. And I think this is a great example of when something like this happens, things need to be made public and need to be kind of examined thoroughly in front of the public so that it's a disincentive for the government to do something like this again and so it doesn't happen again on a kind of a a practical kind of um, uh, point of view when they're undertaking such a massive project as this. It's it's almost, I mean, you're talking about the government doing something, but the interesting thing when you look at how the story has been drip fed out about the overruns is it's almost as if it's about government not doing, allowing something to just go on and not having any structure there for intervention when projected costs began to escalate. So it's interesting that you know, what's what's really needed is is a more interventionist approach, I think one would have to say, in terms of health spending and Department of Health um, structures for oversight of spending. And I'm thinking not just, in fact, of the nurses uh, strike and of the children's hospital, but also of the huge other health issue that's coming down the tracks, which is the cost of implementing Slauncher Care, the big report about structural reform of the health service that has been, you know, signed up to by all the parties across party, uh, a government supported initiative. And nobody's talking about the cost of implementing that, but yet because that, but that is the next big project, and it's obviously both capital and um, and uh, current spending, both uh, salary and and um, building and infrastructure and so on. But you know, we do need to be assured, I think, or reassured about structures of and governance around spending and uh, Department of Health to 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 make sure that 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 huge project that we all want to see happen, a proper reform of our health service, that that isn't also scuppered or you know mired in controversy. Okay, Ivana, Larry and Gronya are going to stay with me. We'll be back in a moment. On the record. On News Talk. Susan Kyo with you on On the Record until one o'clock. My panel, Gronya Nieda, Ivana Bacic and Larry Donnelly are with me. Now we're going to talk a little bit about Brexit. There's still a lot of coverage in the papers on Brexit. But before we do that, Mary Lou Macdonald has uh, been talking to Andrew Marr on the BBC about Brexit and the backstop. Let's have a listen to what she had to say this morning. His process is is very solid, very robust. Irish people are very clear that we are only going forward. We are not going back. But let me say this, it would be grossly reckless, 
grossly irresponsible of the Tories in government or anybody else to play games or to play a game of chicken with that process. Mm. And of course, there would be a concern uh, that minorities, that certain people might take actions in those circumstances. But let me repeat again, we are resolute on this side of the pond. There will be no hard border. Irish interests will be protected. Peace in Ireland, peace across these mm. islands is a precious thing, is the thing that we okay. have built collectively. And shame on anybody uh, on any side of the argument at Westminster uh, that would play games with that or that would endanger it in any way. And there's been a lot of very mm. hot, hot, a lot of, okay. if I may say so, hot air and high rhetoric around the backstop. The backstop is a simple technical mechanism to protect our all island economy and to ensure right. that that process that we have built together remains intact. Sinn Féin's Mary Lou MacDonald speaking to Andrew Marr on the BBC this morning. Grainne, I'll come to you. What do you make of what she had to say there? The coverage that's in the paper is still a lot of Brexit story yeah. doing the rounds today. And what can an Irish politician say other than we are sticking by the backstop at this stage? Like it really is in the House of the Hands of Com or the the hands of the House of Commons and the UK government on what happens next. The next uh, step is a vote on the. By, to be held by the 13th of February and if no one budges by then you know you can't see where this is going other than to a no deal Brexit um, Simon Coveney is also writing in a couple of the papers about the backstop and that he says in one of the, in one of the pieces that there are no credible alternative arrangements um, other than the backstop but I think it's actually even if there was a credible alternative arrangement then that those 317 MPs that voted for alternative arrangements that vote would then split again over well that's I, I agree for alternative arrangements but the mm. specific one that's been put that on the paper yeah. yeah exactly yeah. and so then you don't have a majority anymore so it, it doesn't even matter that there is no credible alternative arrangement we're still kind of stuck in a rut here with Brexit and this kind of uh, perpetual stalemate and uh, it, it's hard to see how it's going to end and the, the worst thing about all of this um, is that Ireland is at a standstill as well as we were saying, like the government doesn't know whether it can possibly that playing into that is the Brexit thing. That's what they're saying anyway. And then there's a headline in the Sunday Independent saying that beware of risk to car insurance policies. Uh, brokers warn customers telling people that they can't, they should kind of avoid um, policies of companies regulated in the UK territories such as Gibraltar uh, because their insurance policies might not be valid in the case of a no deal Brexit those kind of real um, real life scenarios and real life implications as well far the farming industry is very concerned I think the, the government were warned that it could be wiped out as well as the fishing industry in a no deal Brexit and the fact of the matter is that's not actually an exaggeration we haven't been faced with a situation like this before so it's hard to know it's hard to say that that isn't an exaggeration because they don't know how to deal with something like this. Anything stand out for you, Ivana? It does seem the Brexit coverage, um, it, a lot of it is to do with farmers and beef and fishing today in the papers. Yes, there's a lot of consideration, as Grania has explained, of the uh, of sort of practical mm. implications of a no-deal Brexit. Uh, there's also a lot of political analysis. Um, Michael McDowell has a good piece uh, in The Independent and then we were talking also about Simon Coveney's piece. But, but a really, you know, from an Irish political perspective, of course we have to keep um, emphasising the importance of the backstop to us and indeed to Britain. And, you know, I suppose what's often lost in the debate and what, what are sort of willfully lost by the British government is the fact that the British government not only signed up to the withdrawal agreement, but indeed, you know, crafted it alongside the other, nego 
the twenty the negotiations on behalf of the U twenty seven and uh, and stood by the backstop and insisted that it extend to the whole of the UK and uh, and then to see Theresa May as the leader of a sovereign government that has negotiated an agreement then turning her back on it and reneging mm. because she can't manage her own party. I mean, it's it's abs- it's shambolic to see what's been going on in Westminster and it does make one very uh, you know just very worried because even if there were to be some concession on the backstop and I hope there isn't and of course in an Irish point of view we're we're holding firm the EU I see the German foreign minister today saying the backstop is non-negotiable and so on but even if there were to be a letter of comfort to the British in some way suggesting that in the future political declaration which is still to be agreed of course uh, that there might be some further discussion about the back even at that point one Theresa May can't guarantee of course a majority in the House of Commons for that so she has to move her red lines and start reaching out to the softer the Remainers the people who are sensible and cross parties to get them on side to get them on side and then I think we might see I mean as as lots of us did I read the the original 585 page withdrawal agreement it's as good as we can get given that Brexit Mm. is a bad idea generally for everybody in uh, uh, you know it's it's as good as we could have expected in Ireland it's a you you know the backstop must be held to for our point of view but but the lack of logic in the alternative argument about the alternative um, arrangements someone compared the withdrawal agreement to uh, make a submarine out of cheese yeah. and then and they're like oh that's impossible and then actually Theresa May did it it's like oh well this submarine doesn't work kind of thing mm. it was like yeah but that's that's what like this is the impossible yeah. kind of yeah. task that you've yeah. asked for and that's kind of like a good analogy for how difficult it is the only thing that I think that can avoid a no deal at this stage and um, because I'm not I'm not I don't ha- I'm not as optimistic about an extension as most people would be the only thing that I think could avoid it is if both sides give some sort of concession so it's not a political loss for example so if the if the EU concede on the backstop slightly the UK gives something back slightly then that might be politically acceptable but it's hard to see both sides doing that when the European elections are coming up and when the political atmosphere in the UK is as, as spiky mm. and, and, splintered. As, mm. and splintered. as toxic as it is. I mean, a few weeks ago, I suppose, like a lot of people, I was hoping that, you know, it seemed that the prospects of a second referendum were getting Might stronger happen, yeah. and the Remainers within the Labour Party were stronger and so on. But that seemed, again, it's very hard to see a majority for that now. And of course, then there's the concern if you were to hold a second referendum, albeit that would de- that would clearly give me ground for an extension. Uh, and so it would put off the imminence and put off the imminence of no deal. But at the same time, you know, what would happen with that referendum campaign and would it be guaranteed to pass to the, on the Remain side? Clearly they would need to run a very different sort of campaign, well, moving away there, from Project Fear and the, moving to Project I mean, Hope. The, there, is, there, is still, there is still a view uh, and that, that this is what maybe Theresa May is at, that she's going to go back to Brussels, that effectively they're going to say, go pound sand, we're not giving it on the backstop, and that that as March 29th approaches, that's going to focus hearts and minds. I wish I was as optimistic as the people who have that view. Yeah. Are you optimistic about Super Bowl Sunday? Larry, let's finish on this. What's <laughs> happening today? Oh, the, my New England Patriots are taking <laughs> on uh, the LA Rams. Uh, the, the greatest of all time, Tom Brady, is leading us uh, for hopefully one more Super Bowl. Uh, the kickoff, Irish time, will be around half 11. Uh, so it goes on forever. Is it's, it long? It's, yeah, Why it, is it so long? Well, American football games are by their nature. They're about three hours long because the, cl- the clock stops. There's all sorts of personnel shifts. There's t- a- advertisements, of course. Uh, and in the Super Bowl, there's an elaborate halftime show which goes on uh, for the guts of 45 minutes or even closer to an hour. Uh, so it's a spectacle. It's something uh, even uh, people who don't ordinarily watch American football, I know a lot of people do tune in for the Super Bowl. And are the New England Patriots the favourites? They are. They're two 
by two and a half points to the favorites. Uh, I'm cautiously optimistic. It's going to be a long night. I'll be watching with my 19-year-old my son who's a Patriots fan. Uh, so please, God, uh, we'll do the business. Will it be as entertaining as Brexit has been this week, though? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. Let's hope it goes better than, the, than Ireland did last night in the Six Nations. Yeah, absolutely. Or, or better than Galway did last night against the Dubs. <laughs> okay, that's all we've got time for today. Enjoy the Super Bowl Sunday. Big thanks to my panel, Gronya Nye, the reporter with the Journal.ie, Ivana Batic, Labour Senator and Law Lecturer at Trinity and Larry Donnelly, Attorney from Boston, now Law Lecturer at NUI Galway. Thanks for coming in.